0: Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett.
1: As we take time to remember all those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for their country, here are special encore episodes of All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett all filmed and recorded during our Battleship Forum event. You'll hear from Mike Abershoff, Commander of the USS Binfold, on how we turn the worst ship in the Navy from worst to first. We'll be back with new live episodes of All Business on Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern time. Don't forget to tell a friend, and don't forget to thank a veteran for their service.
2: And it's my honor, Jeffrey, and and hi, shipmates. Uh, It's an honor to join you this afternoon, and I'm looking forward to a great program.
1: Well, let me ask you the very first question. You were commander of the USS Benfold. Now, obviously, you knew of its record before you got the command, right? So when you got that command, what was your first thought as, uh, you know, stepping in there? This is, they're going to bring you on the ship. You knew it was the worst ship in the Navy. Most people don't want to take on that task. What made you say, yes, I want to do that? Besides, it was probably an order anyway.
2: Correct. (laughs) They're they're called orders, not invitations. But but, but before I go there, I'd like to tell you about the biggest event of my life. And um, it was with the USS Wisconsin uh, back in Desert Storm. And what's sad is most audiences I talk to today have no recollection of Desert Storm. But it was the, the 2nd of August, 1990. And uh, my ship at the time, USS England, was in the northern Persian Gulf, 100 miles south of Kuwait. We didn't know that uh, an invasion was about to happen. And at 4.30 that morning, we detected 21 unknown fighters coming directly at our ship. And we sound the general quarters alarm. And I get to my radar screen, and I'm looking at these 21 fighters. And I'm thinking, we'll be able to shoot down many of them but I gave us only a 50% chance of being able to shoot down all 21. And as you know, in our line of work, you have to be right 100% of the time. And uh, the first thought that went through my mind that morning was my life insurance is paid up and my will is up to date. And um, for several tense minutes, we tracked those fighters as they got closer and closer. And just as we were getting ready to fire the first missile at them, they hung a right turn into Saudi Arabia, and we later found out that it was the Kuwait Air Force fleeing Kuwait that morning. But for several tense minutes, we thought we were the ones who were under attack. And after the excitement died down, I started thinking, I don't like a 50% chance of survival. What could we or should we have been doing differently while we had the chance to put ourselves in a position to control our own destiny? And that has driven me every day uh, since. How do you put yourself in a position to control your own destiny? And I look back at the previous they're year. put it online. The, the was, year we were supposed to have been spending doing top military to our leaders on leadership.
1: <laughs> and just a second, hey, if you're if for those of you who just joined us, can you make sure you mute your phones or? your your microphone so we can continue the program. Thank you so much. And we do that, and we have to have everybody's open in this way so we can accommodate the crowd, uh, given the Zoom. So p- please continue, Commander.
2: So um, I thought about the previous year, the year we were supposed to have been spending uh, preparing to take our ship to the Middle East. And in that previous year, we did not give it our absolute level best. We spent more time with infighting, Uh, There was no collaboration across the five departments. We weren't intellectually curious in thinking about how we can improve processes. And if we had gotten hit that day, it would have been our fault that we had not done um, everything in our power to control our own destiny. So with that in mind, um, fast forward to USS Penfold. And a slight correction, it wasn't the worst ship in the Navy. Uh, Nobody gets that distinction. But based on all the metrics, it was in the bottom three, four, five. Um, sure. So I just want to make that clear. And um, the thing that had the greatest impact on me was the change of command ceremony, which is a big deal in the Navy. Uh, work stops a month prior. Crew paints the ship from top to bottom. They pitch a tent on the flight deck, put out 300 chairs to the visiting dignitaries. The admiral comes and gives a long-winded speech about how great the outgoing guy is whole ceremony takes about 90 minutes. At the end of the ceremony, as my predecessor was leaving the ship for the final time with his parents and his wife and his kids, and as his departure was announced on the public address system, my new crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. And in my entire career, I had never heard of or seen such a blatant sign of disrespect, and I was flabbergasted. And art culture, among the ship drivers in the Navy is that we eat our young. And in that moment, I took a step back and I thought to myself, why do we eat our young? Why are we proud of it? And what's keeping me from changing it? So from that moment, everything I did was geared to change our culture from eating our young to creating a culture where I would be proud for my own son or daughter to come be a part And we tore every process apart um, and rebuilt it. And I interviewed every sailor on the ship individually, all 310 of them. I got to know their names, their spouses' names, their children's names, their hometowns. And it allowed me to connect with them and engage them and um, make them seem like I care about them. And most importantly, I care about keeping them safe. And that's what's at stake today is what do we need to do to stay safe and control our own destiny in, in very uncertain times? And so that's what drives me every day to be intellectually curious and in how can we do things just 1% better. If Man, if I used to tell my sailors, if we can just be 1% better today than we were yesterday and 1% better tomorrow than we are today, nobody is going to touch us. So we didn't swing for the fences. It was just challenging every process and improving 1% a day. And pretty soon that became the culture of our ship. um, So that we weren't content with just getting by, but that we were going to control our own destiny. And I'm going to stop right there. It's allergy season here and my (laughs) allergies in full bloom. So I'm going to
1: You you go right ahead and I'll ask you a question. So thank you. Does it, it, you know, when you when you, when you see those fighters coming at you like that, Mike, and you're thinking 50%, right? And then now you know that you're not facing those life and death kind of decisions. Do decisions today weigh differently on you, or are they just as intense as they were then?
2: That's a great question. Um, now I get to sleep all night, whereas when I was captain of the ship, I never got a full night's worth of sleep. Um, but the questions, they're, they're just as important. Whereas yeah. I was focused on physical safety and the safety of our country, now it's our economic security. Yeah. And so what we need to do is to focus like a laser beam on our economic security and our own personal uh, journey. Um, and all the things that we used to participate in that really don't mean a thing like um, office gossip, you know, internal politics. none of that matters. Right now it's about um, going to general quarters and getting rid of all the bad habits that never did one thing to help us strive performance and focus and doing everything we can, not to become distracted, but um, to mobilize and be intellectually curious and challenge old assumptions that we've been living by for forever just because that's the way we've always done it. And now we're going to need to chart a new course. And those that are able to shift and be adaptive to change and chart a new course will be the ones that make it through. And if people uh, are set in their ways and resistant to change, um, they may not, I don't know, but it's going to be tougher. So I think, Personally, that's what's at stake is being, having that intellectual curiosity and having the determination to find the best way through. Um, and at the end of the day, no matter what business you're in, whether it's the military or a bank or your business, um, it's, we're in the people business. And we as leaders need to realize that we need to rally our people And give them a vision of what we need to do to stay safe and get everybody um, going in the same direction.
1: You know, I I thought you would answer in the same way that whatever it is, whether it's a life changing decision or it's a or simple decision, you still go at it with the same level of intensity. I expected that. my My father, I'm that way. my My father's that way. I don't know if it. I don't. I don't think it's a military mindset. I think it's a winning mindset. So as you started to make the changes on the Benfold and throughout your career, when you go into these uh, levels of command, I always talk about even when I'm the CEO of a major corporation or you're you're the commander of the ship, same thing, there are other people who stand in the way and become obstacles to you getting things done. I call them the captains of no. You know, how did you, how did you deal with these captains of no, who were resistant to change on that Ben folder and other commands?
2: I call them cave dwellers, citizens <laughs> against virtually everything. Yeah. And no matter what you're for, they're against. And I'll be honest. Um, when I took command, probably 25% of my crew was disconnected and couldn't wait for their contract to be up. Um, And the first thing I did was got the crew together and told them that um, uh, desert storm story. And I tried to connect our our, connect our people to our purpose. And so once everybody started understanding, you know, what our purpose was, and this is serious business, the 75% who did care stopped tolerating mediocrity from the people who didn't and through peer pressure and this is something i didn't understand at the beginning peer pressure is an enormous force in any organization and the good performers started putting pressure on the cave dwellers and we got that number down to maybe uh one or two percent of the crew down from 25 percent, and then those cave dwellers got a personal interview with me and it was a separate interview from when i interviewed all the other sailors And it wasn't emotional, it wasn't adversarial. I had a list of 20 facts about their performance and why it didn't measure up to their shipmates. And I made them admit to themselves that they weren't performing at the level of their peers. And once they did, I asked why. And here's where my education came in. Some sailors chose to share with me personal issues like indebtedness, Uh, kids on drugs, marital problems. If if somebody has a personal issue, I'm a compassionate and humane person. I'll do whatever I can to help you through. If somebody was a cave dweller because they didn't have the training, I got you the training. But if you were a cave dweller because you just didn't want to be there, I put them on a six-month program. They got to come see me once a month for six months. And if they made no effort to improve, I separated them from the Navy. And I had to get rid of about five sailors this way, and I hated doing it every time. And uh, I got to sleep the night before the first sailor. And am I doing the right thing? And finally, I decided, you know, I gave the kid every chance. I got to do it. And so I separated that sailor from the Navy that day. And then the most amazing thing happened. The 98% who did care started stopping me in the passageway and said, what took you so long? We as leaders have an obligation to the good performers not to tolerate the captains of no. Um, And we have to address it head on. And that's what leadership is about taking action. Leadership is not a paycheck. It's about, you know, taking action.
0: Yeah,
1: you, you talk about the individuals, but we all we both know that the culture is made up of everybody. It's made, you know, when I was at Kodak, uh, your Kodak, that person's Kodak and together we're all Kodak. So how did how did you adjust the culture of the entire organization?
2: So we on smaller ships, we generally have five departments. And each one headed up by a department head. And I've got to rank those department heads every year against each other and only the top one or two will ever get command of their own ship. And what this leads to is um, lack of collaboration, only worrying about yourself and only worrying about your own department. And so the second thing I did after taking command was I got those five department heads together and I said the number one thing I'm going to evaluate you on is how well you collaborate with each other and how well you drive that collaboration down to the lowest levels in your department. So um, collaboration now became the number one factor in their rankings and they got it. And if you ask me what we did to change the culture, it was getting them to stop fighting each other, but instead collaborate and work together better as a team.
1: Oh, that's that's unbelievable. C-Suite Radio you and I've shared the stage numerous times and I've always list, loved to listen to your stories. You, you tell a story about, um, painting, painting the ship that you guys are constantly painting the ship. And then you had a suggestion by one of the crew members, like, why are we doing it this way? You, you recall which one I'm talking about? I do. Can you, can you, you you us a little bit with that? Cause I just thought it was like one of those dub moments, you know, that we get as leaders, like what the hell? Uh,
2: Why didn't we think of that? So, um, what, when I joined the Navy, uh, way back when they were wooden ships, it was either join the military or go to jail. What most Americans don't realize today is how smart our people are in the military. Um, and they just, they're using the military as a means to, um, get the tuition assistance so they can go to college someday. When I had the aha moment, how smart our sailors were, in the interviews I asked each sailor, what do you like most about this ship? What do you like least? And what would you change if you were the captain? And rule number one is you can't change the captain. I'm not going anywhere. So one (laughs) sailor comes in and says, do you know how many times we've painted this ship in the last 12 months? And I said, no, and he said six times. And every time we paint the ship, it takes us a month to paint it. So every other month, we're painting the ship. He said, have you ever painted your home? And I said, yes. He said, it sucks, doesn't it? And and I said, what's your point? We've been painting ships for 244 years. He said, did you ever stop to notice why we have to paint the ship every other month? Whenever a new piece of equipment is added topside to the hull of the ship, it's being held in place with nuts, bolts, screws, washers, and fasteners that are made out of ferrous metal that rusts in salt water. And when it rusts, it streaks rust stains down the side of the ship. And it hit me, we we give contracts to the lowest bidder and they're always trying to cut corners and save money. And they never took into account the total cost of ownership of what those sailors have to do to maintain that equipment. So we scoured the globe, we spent about $25,000, changed out every source of corrosion that we could, Painted the ship, we did not have to paint the ship again for the next 10 months. And and what's even better is when you think about painting a ship, it's not like you're in your living room painting your living room. You are in a harness hanging from the mast of the ship, or you're hanging over the side of the ship, which is inherently dangerous. And so by reducing the number of times we have to do these dangerous operations, you create a culture of safety. So that people do things that um, keep them physically safe on the job as well. And that's another thing that we tried to create was we want you to to be safe uh, when you work on this ship.
1: Mike, uh, the question came in uh, from the audience. They're asking you to kind of expand on your, your culture or the recognition of the culture of eating your young. What specifically did you recognize that was outdated in that and that your team needed to change?
2: That we, um, uh, demean people, um, challenge their motives, um, don't think that they're on our side. Um, and in general, you, you treat them, uh, with disrespect and then only the, the toughest stay. Um, in some regards, the, those who stay were ones who couldn't do anything else because nobody right. wants to be treated that way. Right. And so, um, what, I don't want to call it a hostile work environment, but it wasn't a respectful one. And so um, what I wanted to do was to create a work environment that treated, and and my ship was the first ship built from the keel up to accommodate both men and women. And I wanted um, people to be treated with respect and dignity. And in the interviews I'd ask um, uh, every sailor individually, Is there racial prejudice on this ship? Is there sexual harassment on this ship? And if I heard about it, you know, noncompliance was painful. Uh, Because the culture that we tried to create is you treat each other with respect and dignity, and you treat each other in a manner in which you yourself want to be treated. And that was, you know, we make culture too darn difficult. For me, it's, would you want your son or daughter to come work for you? And Jeffrey, I know Tyler works for you and he's a great kid to work, to work with. You know, would you want your son or daughter to come work with you and see in action? And if you're proud, you're on the right track. If you're embarrassed, fix it. And that's what we wanted to do was to fix everything I was embarrassed about. So
1: what what traits should a great leader have? And of course, we're listening live right here, our live cast on LinkedIn and on Facebook. Uh, we're taping our session with Commander Mike Abrashoff, best-selling author, keynote speaker, uh, former commander of the USS Benfold, been talking about the Benfold, and we're live right here on uh, C-Suite Radio with All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. So what traits
2: traits should a great leader have, Mike? Uh, You've got to have a passion to win, but you also um, have to be empathetic, and you also have to have self-awareness as to how you're being perceived by those that you're, you're trying to lead. And so um, I also think that humility is a great trait, that uh, I am not the repository of every great idea. And fortunately, I had a great mentor. Um, I got to I had the great honor of being the number two assistant to the, our Secretary of Defense. It was William Perry. And um, he led with a sense of humility. And I would come to call his leadership style excellence without arrogance and i personally think uh, so i build everything on what appeals to me and so uh that sense of humility appeals to me so that's what i try to espouse you know personally and have the self-awareness that of how i'm coming across and i hope i'm not coming across as being arrogant but um not at all i try to lead and connect with my audiences with that sense of humility that we're all in this together. We can learn from each other. Uh, Nobody has a repository and every great idea and let's roll up our sleeves and and get it done.
1: Well, Tricia had pointed out early when we started this, uh, uh, program today, the the hero culture, and she held up the book, the the hero factor, which is a book I wrote. And you're espousing some of the great values that we've got as an as a as a member organization in the C-suite. Mike is also a member, a contributing member, and also uh, tomorrow we have uh, uh, Admiral uh, Paul Becker will be with us, and also a- Admiral Cindy Thebold. And remember when I mentioned, I said I'm going to have these two admirals speaking. You knew who they were, absolutely.
2: And way back when, um, I was Cindy's first detailer that assigned her to her second assignment back in 1985. I think she was class of 85. She probably doesn't remember me, but um, I can't do math or physics, but I can remember people's names and faces and and events and whatnot. And uh, I clearly remember um, assigning her to one of her first assignments and i did a great job because she became an admiral i set her up for success.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure i'm sure she say that you did have something to do with it. at least being in the right place at the right time who do you who do you look up as as a leader i mean when you when you're a commander i mean you're a commander of a, a warship i mean like that you know or a ship in the navy it i just who who do you look to and say wow i learned from that person or that person was my my mentor my hero who are those people
2: for you so I had a lot of negative leaders. Yeah. Uh, you talk about uh, the culture of eating our young. My first ship, um, the captain would yell at us until veins popped out of his forehead and neck. And <laughs> as a result, nobody wanted to um, put themselves out there and volunteer for things. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't care. I mean, I'll, if if I'm if I do something wrong, I can. I can understand it, and I'll and I'll get better. But, but being, if you uh, have,
1: but if you have that, Mike, though, if you have a culture like that, what happens is, as you well know, people start pushing other people out there, right? I mean, that becomes part of that culture. You say, "Hey, hey, hey, Ensign, you go take this to the old man," all right?
2: <laughs> so that's what I did, and I volunteered yeah. for every tough assignment on that ship. Every yeah. every driving, you know, refueling from another ship at sea or taking a ship into port. You were going to get. We called it getting flame sprayed with. <laughs> vitriol. I knew it was going to come. Um, the others let it bother them. You know, um, I, if I was, if I did something wrong, I'll take it aboard, but the rest of it, I'm just going to discard. So I learned, um, from that leader, um, the, the terrible effects that that type of leadership style can have. Yeah. You know, it, all it gets you is people who, uh, don't volunteer for the extra mile. Yeah. Um, but I had a uh, uh, a fantastic commanding officer, his name was Cutler Dawson, who later became a vice admiral and later became the CEO of the Navy Federal Credit Union and made it the largest credit union in the country. Um, but when I went to work for him, um, I wasn't as technically competent as I should have been. And I was a department head at the time. And on this ship, we had three, only three department heads. And at sea, the three of us ran the operation. It was uh, shift work, six hours on, 12 hours off. I was barely getting through my six hours um, and not doing a great job of it. And I'm just waiting for that six hours to, for the clock to hit so I could turn the mess over to the next person. And then he would have to clean it up. And after about three days, this company brought me into his cabin and he said, it's not enough for you to get through your six hours of duty. You need to do that, but also prepare for the next six hours, so that the person who relieves you doesn't have to do a thing but to prepare for the next six hours after that mm. and that was an aha moment for me is you just don't do enough to get by, but you need to um, prepare the next person so that they don't have to do anything except prepare after that and so um Commanding officers' final fitness reports are due the day we leave the ship. And I've often thought in the Navy that they should be due six months after you leave or 12 months after you leave because then it will show everybody what you did to prepare that ship for the future. And, um, and so I've seen ships fall apart the day the captain leaves because it was being held together through his or her own force of personality or their own personal heroics, and that's not a recipe that creates something sustainable. So if something falls apart when you're not there, you're not doing enough to prepare for the future and to prepare for that next, that next uh, set of requirements.
1: It's interesting that we think as we're doing these jobs that other people might, and we're not doing them as effectively or efficiently as possible that we think others might not know. <laughs> and I think it's, it's apropos that he called you into the cabin to talk to you about that. Hey, another question was to ask you to expand on your strategy that you use to implement the top ideas. Your crews came up with these ideas, you know, on the binfold or on other ships. And they, they said, Hey, uh, we should do it this way. How did you take those ideas and efficiently put them into place? And what was the strategy around
2: that? So I had a public address microphone right at my desk. And in the interviews, if I got a great idea that was actionable, I hit the button right then and there with the sailor sitting there. And I'd say, Benfold, this is the captain. This is the idea I just got. This is who I got it from. It makes sense to me. We're going to implement it right now. I want your full support. And that's how the crew knew I was serious. That's how they knew I wasn't flavor of the month that implement immediately. Now, some ideas clearly aren't actionable, you don't have the resources. They don't make sense. You don't have the budget for it. Look them in the eye and tell them about it. But there's a group of ideas in the middle that I could see where they were going with them, but they needed more work. And so I would say, here are my objections to your idea. If you can go back and overcome my objections, come back and knock on my door. And our best ideas came when I originally said no, but gave them my objections, and I think the reason why they became some of the best ideas is because those people then became invested in it, personally invested in they owned it. And what I'm trying to get to is a culture where everybody on that ship feels ownership for what they're doing. Uh, and that's how you can get to the next level of performance when people have that engaged engagement that they feel it personally and they take ownership. And that's how you, you know, drive performance, in, in my opinion.
1: Well, don't forget, those listening in, an idea without implementation is only air. You know, a lot of people forget that. Oh, I had that idea. Well, if you don't implement it, it was just an idea. It's just there. It doesn't mean squat. So I think that's interesting. C suite radio. What's been the biggest leadership lesson that you've ever learned?
2: That's a great question. Um, William Perry told it to me. My last day working for him. Calls me in, sits me down, and he says, no matter how hard you try, your ship is never going to be perfect. He said, you're going to have disappointments every day. He said, whenever you're disappointed in an outcome, he said, I want you to remember to assume that your crew wanted to do a great job. And if you don't get the results you're looking for, don't blame them first, but instead look inward. Did you clearly communicate the goals to them? Did you give them the training necessary to be successful? Did you give them the time and the resources to do a great job? But most importantly, did the process support them um, delivering the results you were looking for? So what William Perry taught me was not to blame others, but instead look inward and ask myself what I could have done differently or better. And 80% of the time there was something that I could have done better to have generated a better outcome.
1: So somebody asked about mentoring activities today, both military and civilians. How do you think uh, that, that type of mentoring that you experienced is being done today in the military? And what do you think it's being done today, right or wrong in, uh, in the private sector?
2: So we didn't call it mentoring back then.
1: No, I'm sure you did.
2: <laughs> um, and when I worked for William Perry. I was not in the leadership role. I was a a paper pusher. And um, every day a four-foot stack of paper would come into his office. They gave me a box of yellow highlighters. My job was to sit there and highlight what I thought was important for SecDef to see. And I would get this four-foot stack of paper down to eight or nine inches. And then between me and the secretary is the senior military assistant, a three-star job. Colin Powell had the job as a three-star. Admiral McRaven, the guy who planned the raid that captured Bin Laden, had the job. John Kelly had the job. It's one of our most important three-star jobs. So I put my eight or nine inches of stuff uh, in the general's in basket, and from my desk I could watch him work. And at the beginning, he threw ninety percent of what I thought was important. It's called the, in the burn bag for destruction. It's a it's where you put classified material. Ninety yep. percent he was thrown in the putting in the burn bag. And he never took me aside to tell me why he was just discarding my work and giving me no feedback. And I was miserable. I, I wasn't improving. Uh, I wasn't feeling like I was doing a great job. When you have a 10% effectiveness rating, you know, you're, you're, you're at the bottom. And I couldn't imagine being, I had 26 months left in a job being miserable for 26 more months. So I decided to train myself to think like my boss Every night at 8.30 when he went home from work, I would go into his office, and I would take the burn bag, and I'd empty it out on his desk, and I'd compare everything of mine uh, that he threw away and compared it to what he sent on to the secretary. And what I tried to do was to train myself to think like him. And what that enabled me to do, I, I realized what was important, and I would get that eight or nine inches of stuff down to maybe one or two inches. And I'd sit there and I'd watch the general and he would just rubber stamp it and and send it right on to the secretary. And I got from maybe a 10% effectiveness rating, maybe up to 95%. So, And I started to feel good about myself. So I started to continue to play the game. Um, In the meetings, I, I never had a seat at the table. I sat in the back row. And before they would make a decision, I would say to myself, if I'm the general, based on what's been presented, what decision would I make? And if I made the same decision that the general made, it was like, gee, I can think like a three-star. If he made a different decision, it was, gee, there's a gap in my training that I need to go fill. And what this enabled me to do was to anticipate what needed to be done before he ever asked for it. And what happened was he started to trust me. And he started to give me more and more of his responsibilities. He put me in charge of the SecDef security detail, the communications team, the trip planning team. I had 45 people reporting to me in a job that was previously an individual contributor. And you know what? To this day, uh, and we're friends, he's never given me any feedback. I got it from his wife. One day she came into the office and she said, Mike, I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Paul, because for the first time he's coming home at night happy mm-hmm. now, mentoring goes both ways, and I get requests gee will will you mentor me?" and I'm like, "Well, what are you doing to mentor yourself? So you have an obligation to be intellectually curious and to anticipate what your chain of command needs and how your boss makes a decision so that you can train yourself passively to think like a like your boss and then if the boss makes a decision that you don't understand maybe later in the day go and say I don't understand why you made this decision or how you made this decision can you tell me what you were thinking about so that I can be better informed to me, that's mentoring, and then I can take the time and focus on your particular need instead of this you know, gee, mentor me so I can be partner someday. And so I think the mentee has an obligation to um, to train themselves to think at a higher level and then use that mentor to fine tune and And demystify how they are made a decision, and so that's my view on mentoring and um, and mentoring is key and it's it's in the the mentor's best interest to bring their people along, so that they can lift burdens off their shoulders so that they can go home happy at night and And that's what if every if both sides take ownership of the issue. Uh, that's how, to me, how you create an effective mentoring program.
1: Spot on. You know, so many times, as you know, Mike, employees come up to you, your partners come up to you, and they start telling you all the things that they want you to know, but it's really about what they want to know. It's the stuff they want to feel like they're contributing rather than the things that you want, right? And so I have constantly, you know, sit down with the team to say, that's all a story. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's the stuff that goes in the burn pile, <laughs> burn bag. Right. And give me the stuff I need to really know. And, and the more that you can get that team to do that, the more valuable they become to you and the more valuable the mission is, the more valuable that you get everything. You know, I just, is fantastic to be able to see. Mike, we got a, another minute. I've actually run out, but I want to ask you this one question then we want to go to Q&A. And I want, because we got a lot of people asking a lot of questions. You started the story with the disrespect that the former commander had um, or captain when he stepped off that ship, when you stepped off that ship, what did the crew
2: do? So the change of command ceremony to me is one of the most inefficient uh, uses of time uh, ever invented. And it costs taxpayers money. It takes sailors away from reductive work. So instead of doing it in port, I planned to do it um, at sea during a week we were underway for training. didn't cost taxpayers a dime. And we assembled on the flight deck 10 o'clock on Thursday morning. We were in our boots and coveralls. We took a 15-minute break and assembled on the flight deck. And um, I said five words to my crew. And uh, it was, you know how I feel, because every crew member in that ship knew how I felt about our mission. But most importantly, they knew that I knew that they were the ones that were responsible for delivering the excellence. And I walked to the side of the ship where the small boat was waiting to take me ashore. And I turned and I saluted them because I worked for them. And as I departed, I played walk on the ocean by Toad the Wet Sprocket. Uh, Never been done before at a change of command ceremony. And by the time I got home, there was an email waiting for me. Uh, from one of the sailors said, there wasn't a dry eye on the ship when I left. And so it wasn't about being liked. What I focused on was keeping them safe. And when people know what the purpose is, and they see you fighting to achieve that purpose and to support them, they'll become loyal and dedicated and, and committed to you.
1: Well, I can hear the emotion in your voice. I can see it in you as well, knowing you, and uh, it's uh, and the pride that comes with that. C-Suite Radio. And, of course, we're talking with Commander Mike Abershaw, former commander of the United States Navy, uh, leader of the USS Benfold, author of a best-selling book and keynote speaker. And we're so glad to have him right here live on our live cast on LinkedIn and on Facebook as we tape another session of uh, all business with Jeffrey. Hazlett it right here on C-Suite radio. Of course this week is C-Suite networks battleship forum leadership series. So Tricia, what questions do we have from the audience?
3: We have some great questions. The chat has been so incredibly active with the hundreds of people we have on here. So, um, Greg Williams, one of our C-Suite Network Thought Council members had a question about, you know, you've got thoughtful preparation and planning uh, that go into great leadership and certainly enhance operations, but he's asking, what do you do when you know what you're being told to do or asked to do is adverse to what's the right thing to do?
2: Well, Greg, that's a great question. Um, so I didn't, um, I didn't always agree with the direction that was leveled on me from on high, but instead of responding with an email with 10 CCs on it, I would go directly to that person. And I, I would say, I understand what you're trying to accomplish and I would like to throw this out as a possible way of, of meeting your goals. And so, um, it was just, it was done privately. Nobody, the, so most importantly, the crew never knew when I disagreed with my chain of command, I owned it. And, and for them, it was, as if it was coming for me. And so I never said, well, this is what the Admiral wants us to do. It was, no, this is what we need to do. That's, that's a loyalty that we owe our chain of command is to own that direction. Now, in return, mm. uh, to me, my chain of command owes me the loyalty. If I can come up with a better solution to the, what they're trying to accomplish, I want them to listen to me. And so privately, I would go back to them and I, I'd say, you know, we've thought about this. We want you to help. We want to accomplish this goal, but we think we can do it better if we do it this way. I'll be honest. I never once got shot down. And every time I did it, I take that back. Um, there may have been two times when we were in the Persian Gulf and I got shot down. And then I'd go back and say, I'd like an NFL instant replay. And that was code for, I'm serious. You need the change. And so one, I got one of those two overturned after the, the review of the play, one of them got overturned, one of them I got shot down, but I felt comfortable with my chain of command surfacing those, those doubts or surfacing a better way. And, um, and so I, I understand that there are some environments where people are afraid to tell their boss the truth. Um, if that's, that to me is a cancer, when people are, fear in a respectful way of asking for an NFL instant replay. And fortunately, um, I, I'm not afraid to do it uh, because everybody knows that you know my goal is not for self-promotion, but it's for the good of the ship or the good of the battle group or the good of the fleet.
3: That's fantastic. Okay, I have another great question. Carrie Gibson, who's up in Vancouver, Canada, she said, regarding culture uh, change in the military, how has diversity and inclusion been addressed from a leadership position and how mm. it is valued?
1: Great question.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be honest, when we first uh, started integrating women on ships, uh, it was not well received. And, and I'll be honest, when I found out that Benfold was a mixed gender crew, I did not want to go there because I was set in my ways. After having served on a mixed gender ship, I would have never gone back to an all male ship because I found that having women on the ship elevated the men's performance because they didn't want to be shown up and it elevated our, um, um, level of discourse on the ship. They don't call them salty sailors for nothing. There's a reason for it, but it elevated and people started interacting with each other more civilly. Now, having said that, um, there was still, um, when, before I got there, there were five serious cases of sexual harassment and I can't order that to go away with an edict, but you know what? I can be seen by every member of the crew to care about it. And that's why in every interview, I asked every sailor, is there racial prejudice on this ship? And is there sexual harassment on this ship? And if I found out about it, noncompliance was painful. And it's it's not enough to ask. You've got to take action once you find out where it exists. Because at the end of the day, I would tell my, so I didn't, I changed it from our diversity program to our unity program because I I didn't want us to focus on our differences. I wanted to focus on what unites us and what unites us is, you know, staying safe and that it takes people with different skill sets, different levels of creativity, uh, different gender, different races. And that's a good thing. And if we make that all work in harmony and collaboration, it makes us stronger. And unfortunately, where we are um, in the United States today is not focusing on what unites us. The news media on both sides have weaponized the news and are monetizing it by dividing us. And the only thing we can do is uh, say no. So I've, I've been off the road now for five weeks. I have not watched the news one day. I do not, um, uh, I have not turned the news on um, because um, I, you know, I can get it from other sources, but I'm not watching the news anymore. Um, and I'm using this time to uh, improve myself. I'm watching more documentaries. And by the way, Carol is guilty as hell. <laughs> So that's how I'm spending my time.
3: With, uh, there we go. I, okay. So I think we have okay. time for one more question. And and I love- yeah, one, minute, one minute.
1: One minute.
3: One minute. This one's really quick. How do you maintain and strive for improvement in the mindset that has, has your team constantly focused on that improvement and growth?
2: Never be satisfied with where you are. Yeah. That you can always do better. That you can always be more efficient that you can be better trained, that you can work together better as a team. In the Navy, accidents happen when complacency sets in. So the key is not allowing an organization to become complacent because that's when accidents happen.
3: Thank you so much, Mike. And I want to thank Amanda Wren for that question. And Dave Ferguson, he he talks about boss versus leadership. And, and I can't help but think everything you just shared with us demonstrates leadership and not not a boss. So thank
1: you, Mike. Hey, Hey, Commander, thank you so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you as always. Good to see you, my friend. I owe you a a scotch or two next time we get together. But I appreciate you joining us and being part of this uh, live cast right here on LinkedIn and Facebook, along with uh, taping of All Business with Jeffrey Hazard on C-Suite Radio.
0: So thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate it. You got it.